All right. Welcome, church. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to announce that hopefully, tentatively, this will be the last time that I have to preach to a camera and the last time that you have to listen uh, behind the other side of a screen. That's right. Next Sunday, May 10th, we are taking a step back towards more normalcy. Next Sunday, May 10th, we plan to gather together as a church. And although we, we plan to gather together as a church. Now, it's not going to be the same as it normally is, but it'll be a step forward in the right direction, we think. We have been either to gather together, we're excited to do so, but we want to do so in a way that honors our government and keeps everybody safe. And so we think the best way to do this is to have two identical services. Two identical services. We want to we have enough room in our auditorium for people to social distance as family units. And so we're going to do two services. We're going to do one at 9 a.m. and one at 10.30 a.m. And uh, we'd like for you to attend the 9 a.m. service if your last name is A through K or starts with A through K. And then if your last name starts with the letter L through Z, we'd ask that you'd attend the 10.30 service. Now, we're not going to police that. Uh, if, if one time works better for you than another, if you want to come with a family member who has a different last name or whatever, that's fine. It's just our attempt to make sure that uh, the attendance gets spread out over both services more equally so that we can provide safe distance for everybody to, to kind of keep that six foot or whatever between everyone. So that's what we're thinking. Um, our services will include a time of worship. We'll sing a few songs. Our hope is to have a band of some kind. We're still trying to figure out the details of what that all will look like, but we'll have some worship. We'll have a time of sharing together. We're not going to take a traditional offering. We don't want to pass the plate and pass germs and all of that stuff, so we'll have probably stuff at the doors if you'd like to give um, or want to do that, but instead, and during our offering time, we'll probably have a time of sharing a time of testimony. So be thinking, be praying about what you might like to share with the church family. And then we will continue in our First John series as well. So we can't wait to see you together again to worship with you some more. We're excited for that. And as we've been saying constantly, um, we recognize that some of you might, or that for some of you, it still might be a little too soon. You might be uncomfortable. Maybe you're in an at-risk category. There is absolutely no pressure to attend our live Sunday morning gathering whatsoever. We want you to make that decision based on where you're at, what you think, what you will be comfortable. We want you to make that decision what's best for you and your family at this time. There is grace. If you decide to come, if you don't decide to come, there is no right answer. That is, that is your decision to make, but we will be gathering in those two services uh, on May 10th. And in light of, of that, I'd ask that you continue to pray for us as a leadership team. It, uh, it feels like the information we've been given changes every two hours sometimes, and some of the stuff they told us is different from what they told us a week ago. So it's been, it's been tough to make heads or tails of all of this and trying to decide what's best for our community and our church family. And so we just ask that you pray for us Pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment, that he would give us clarity on the facts and, and how best to proceed. For right now, the plan is to meet on May 10th. That's the plan we've come up with. And like all plans, 
we submit them to the Lord and to his will. We hold them loosely before him. If we need to change it, then we'll change it. So please pray for us as a leadership team as we continue to think how best to move forward um, in, in regards uh, to how we care for our community and, and love on people and lead with grace and, and unity and love and all of those things. We, we're just trying really hard to make a decision that, that serves the community and thinks everybody's interests and factors all of that in and also honors the Lord and, and honors what he, what he called us to do as well. So pray for us in that. Okay, that's it for announcements. Let's get into 1 John this morning. I'm excited. We'll be in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 this morning. I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles out. I don't care if it's on your phone or an iPad or the, the good hard copy, whatever, whatever you need to do. Hit pause, go grab your Bible. I want the text to be in front of you this morning because I'm going to allude to some verses throughout here, but it's going to be really helpful for you to be able to quickly re- refer back to some of those verses, and I just want you to have it before you. So hit pause, go get your Bible, flip to it on your phone, get it out, have it in front of you. <clears throat> so moving to the text here. I've enjoyed this study a lot, but if you've been reading through 1 John once or twice or, or a couple times as we've been going through this study, you will notice that John repeats himself. John is not like Paul or Peter in their letters. Their letters are very systematic. There's kind of a flow, an argument. They make one point, and then they move on to the next. John's a little bit more repetitive, a little bit more cyclical in the way that he makes his point. He'll make a point, move on to a next one, and then circle around back to a point he made earlier. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, It's not a bad thing. It just makes Wes and I work a little harder to make sure that we're not preaching the same message every week as we're going through 1 John. And so we're doing our best to do that. Hopefully you're not feeling like it's the same thing every week. Last week, if you'll remember, Wes talked about the importance of confession. And at the end of his message, he gave us a little saying that comes from Texas. He said, there's a saying that goes around in Texas, big hat, no horse, you ain't no cowboy, right? If you got a big hat, but no horses, you ain't no cowboy. And his point was that If we claim not to have sin as Christians, if we claim not to have sin in our lives, then we're deceived and we actually make God out to be a liar. If you or I claim to have no sin, you ain't no Christian. It's not not, you ain't no cowboy. If we claim we don't have any sin in our life, then you you might not be a Christian, right? And it's, it's not that Christians are sinless people. It's not that we're sinless people. It's that it's, it's that Christians have begun the process of sinning less because they're motivated by God's grace, what he's done for us in Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's not that Christians are sinless people. It's that we sin less because we're compelled by the grace of God and empowered by his Holy Spirit. Along with that then, if we do fail or fall into sin as a Christian, we make it a habit make it a point to confess our sins to one another and also to God. One of the main distinctions that 1 John points out to us is that Christians know we're sinful, we know we need a Savior, and if we sin, we confess our sins when we fail. Unbelievers aren't like that. Unbelievers are clueless about their sinfulness, or they just blatantly don't care at all. They don't give a rip about it. Christians struggle with sin. Unbelievers don't. Now, That was last week. This week, we're moving from confession 
as one of the distinctions of what it means to be a Christian to obedience. And I've got three points I want to make for you here today. The first one is this, loving Jesus as Lord. If you're a Christian, you will love Jesus as Lord. Secondly, if you're a Christian, you will love the body of Christ like Jesus loves us. And thirdly, if you're a Christian, you won't love the world. So love Jesus as Lord, love the body of Christ, and don't love the world. Those are the three points. But before we unpack those points, I want to read the text with you together. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, it reads like this. And I'll be reading from the NLT this morning. So if you're in the Bible app, scroll up to the top there, select the NLT, you'll follow right along. I'll also put it up on the screen for you as well. Starting in chapter 2. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one that you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For darkness is disappearing, and true light is already shining. If anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. And anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. I am writing to you who are God's children, because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in faith, because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in faith, because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children, because I know, because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith, because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in faith, because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Do not love this world nor the things it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. All right, the first point, the first point we'll make together, Christians love Jesus as Lord. Now, when we start talking about obedience, as John does here in the first six verses of chapter two, people start to get a little clammy, right? We're Americans. We love our freedom. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me how to live my life, we think. Don't tread on me. Don't tread on my freedoms. 
Anytime there's someone giving us orders, many of our natural gut reactions are to flinch and to pull back. We want to rebel and do the opposite of what we're being told to do. That's one reaction, rebellion. The other reaction, especially in church circles, when we talk about obedience, is to focus on the rules. This is more for the type A person. Just tell me what I got to do, right? I want to get to heaven because hell is horrible. I've heard about that place. What steps do I need to get there, they think. And they pull out their notebooks and their label makers and they start to reorganize their lives to make sure that, they're, that they and theirs are following the rules. Rigid rule following is the other reaction. Rigid rule following or rebellion. These are the two most common reactions when we talk about obedience in church, when we talk about commandments. We either don't want to be told what to do, or we think that somehow by obeying all the rules perfectly, or at least making ourselves look good on the outside, following those exterior rules, that we can make it to heaven. The Bible says that both of these reactions is wrong. The wrong response when we talk about obedience and commandments. John gives us a third way. He says the rules of Christianity were never meant to be the focus. A relationship with Jesus is what's most important. John says we're not called to love the rules, but instead we're called to love the Lord. We're called to love the Lord. See, if Jesus is our Lord, we'll listen to what he says. If Jesus is truly the commander of our lives, then our actions will show that we follow his commands. Our rule following flows out from a relationship with Jesus. And I love how John writes about this. He acknowledges the struggle and the reality of loving Jesus as our Lord. Right there in verse 1, John starts by letting us know, if we sin, Jesus will go to bat for us before the Father. We have an advocate We have a friend in Jesus that wants the best for us. He's not some ruthless dictator waiting in the bushes to pounce as soon as we fail. It's just the opposite, in fact. Jesus is our advocate. He's going to plead our case before the Father when we fail. And don't miss this. This is huge. When we sin... Jesus and Jesus pleads our case. He's not like any old lawyer, right? He doesn't look at our life and then try to spin the evidence to maybe win the case. Hey, listen, God, I know they promised never to do that thing again, and they went ahead and did that thing again, but you got to understand, this coronavirus, it just kind of has everybody on edge. Why don't you maybe cut them a break here, right? That's a pretty weak argument. Praise God, Jesus has a better argument than that. When he goes before the Father on your behalf and my behalf, he's not talking about our sin or making excuses or trying to spin the facts in some way. No, Jesus is talking about his work. Father, I know they failed again, but remember. Remember my life? Remember how I lived sinlessly? Remember how I went to the cross and I died on on their behalf? I paid for that sin. They're with me. They're with me. I love them. I purchased them. That sin, yeah, it's forgiven. I paid for it. I paid for it. There's no case here. Case closed. You can throw this one out there with me. Do you see how having an advocate motivates us towards obedience? This love displayed by Jesus on the cross, willingly dying to save you and to save me, and then linking himself up to us, willingly going to bat for us, being our advocate, 
That's a Lord I want to follow. That's a Lord I want to listen to. That's a guy I want to link my cart up to, right? That's someone I don't want to disappoint. You see, loving Jesus as Lord means listening to what he says. Because through relationship with him, we have come to a place where we don't want to disappoint him. We want to please him. And I want you to think of it in terms of a family relationship. Now, some of you have grown up with difficult parents. Parents that were maybe were always shouting, running you down, pointing out your flaws and mistakes. I'm sorry for that. That's not good parenting, right? Well, others of you have grown up with pretty solid parents. They weren't perfect, but they encouraged you and you knew that they had your back. Those that grew up with difficult parents probably resent their parents, right? You probably don't want to listen to a thing that they say or obey anything that they tell you. You don't want to listen to anything they say. But those of you that grew up with good parents, my guess is you desire to bring honor to your parents, that you desire to please them, that you don't want to disappoint your mom and dad. And so you listen to what they tell you and ask from you. Friends, God is better than any of our earthly parents. He's way better. Some of you had a decent example from your parents of who God is, while others of you have not. But my point is this. If you truly get to know God, you'll want to obey what he says because his love will put you in a place where you desire to please him, to make him proud. You won't want to disappoint him. See, Christianity is not about rule following for rule following's sake. That leads to resentment. No, Christians follow because they love, because they love God. As the text says in verse 5, our actions show our love or complete our love. It's an outflow of the love and respect that we have for our Heavenly Father. Christians, John says, love Jesus as their Lord, and that shows itself by the fact that they listen to what he says. He's their commander, and that is borne out observably because they follow his commands. Secondly, Christians love the body of Christ. John writes in verses 7 through 14 about how Christians love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to talk more about this point next week, so I don't want to get in too deep here yet, but I'll say this. John says he's giving a new commandment here. But then he says it's also an old commandment. Now, we could get frustrated by John's seemingly opposing statements. He makes several of them throughout this text. If, if you've read this book or been rereading through it, you'll, you'll see that John says things like, Christians don't keep on sinning, right? They, they don't walk in the darkness. Christians walk in the light. And then two sentences later, he says something like, if you claim that you don't have any sin, you're a liar. And we could get frustrated by these seeming contradictions, or we could say, thank you. Thank you, John, for being real. Thanks for being real, right? I don't know about you, but my life isn't this neat and tidy picture of perfection or Christian perfection. It wasn't like I was out raping and pillaging and rolling with the drug cartels, selling crack to babies, and then I got saved. And now every morning, the Holy Spirit just whispers in my ear, tells me I need to get up. I don't even set an alarm anymore. The Holy Spirit just shows up. Hey, Levi, it's time, it's time to awaken. 
And so he gets me up and I wake up and I look at the foot of my bed and there's Jesus sitting at the foot of my bed. He says, hey bud, good morning. It's time to spend some time in my word. I, I picked out a passage for you. Let's read it together. And then Jesus just dumps some spiritual sweetness on me. And then after we get done, the Holy Spirit comes in with the coffee. And after I finish my coffee, I get on my unicorn and I ride it to work. And nothing's ever frustrating or, or bad because everything's awesome all the time. I wish that were my life, church. <laughs> Riding a unicorn, that sounds awesome, right? I wish that were my life. Sounds amazing. But it's not. The truth is, I don't set an alarm in the morning. But it's not because the Holy Spirit whispers gently in my ear to wake me up. It's because my three children wake me up an hour before I set my alarm, fighting about what, which one of them gets to pick the YouTube video they want to watch for this morning, right? John gets it. He gets our lives. That's why he writes the way he does. The Christian life is filled with these seeming paradoxes and contradictions. But if we'll take the entirety of John's message, the fruits that he outlines for us as a whole, and we weigh them against our life, if we read 1 John and we can say, yep, that's been my experience, then that should assure us in our salvation. And so John says, I'm giving you a new and old commandment here. The old part of this commandment is to love one another. Nothing new or original there, right? The new part is found in verse 8. The NIV puts it like this. They say, he, and the NIV in verse 8 says, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus, and in you. The new part of the commandment to love one another is that Jesus has now become the standard for what love looks like. So that begs the question, how did Jesus love? Well, if we were to put it simply, it means he went first. He went first. While we were still unlovable, rebellious, wicked sinners, Jesus journeyed towards us in love. He moved towards us. He took the first step towards us in love. Jesus showed us what love looks like. Jesus showed us that the relationship is always more important than our immediate individual needs. Jesus showed us that when we love the body of Christ, it needs to look more like a mother's love for a newborn child than a mother's love of Target or Amazon, right? One of those loves is covenantal love, and the other is contractual or consumeristic a mom's love for a newborn treasures the relationship, is willing to be inconvenienced and sacrifice her immediate needs and preferences because that baby is hers. The bond is unbreakable. There is no amount of circumstances, no amount of sleepless nights or horrendous smelling diapers, no amount of money spent on hospital bills that will make that mom ever leave her child. She loves that baby. The relationship is all that matters. Preferences, individual needs, they change nothing between the mother and the child. Now, consider that same mom's love of Target. It's a thin love compared to the love for the baby, right? If Target has a decent product at a lower price than Amazon, man, she loves herself some Target, right? Get that 5% red card back, cash back. Come on now. But what if Amazon has a better deal? They're now offering 7% off and 15-minute shipping. That's right. If you buy from Amazon, you'll get 7% off, and that 
item, whatever you just purchased is going to show up in the next 15 minutes on your doorstep. All the love that she felt for Target, it's gone. Just like that. Now she's all in for Amazon. This is contractual love, not covenant love. This type of love is thin. It's fleeting. It's based not on the importance of the relationship itself, but what that relationship can give to me now. How can this person, this place, this job, this church serve me? What's in it for me? And as soon as that contract is broken, you know, this just isn't working for me anymore. My needs aren't being met. I'm out. And we bounce. John says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Don't love contractually. Love covenantally like Jesus. Don't make contracts. Make covenants like a mother with her newborn. Commit to love Christ's church, not for what you can get from her, but for the relationships you can have. When people are being smelly and selfish and hard to love, you be like Jesus. Take the first step towards them. Believe me, I know how hard this is. I'm bullheaded. I don't like to be the first person to give in or concede defeat. But let's commit to love like Jesus, church. Be the first to surrender our way, our wants, our preferences, our perspective, our opinions. Let's make our relationships more important than our immediate needs than our wants, than our opinions, than our perspectives. Let's commit to love one another based upon our shared confession of what Jesus has accomplished. That's what verses 12 through 14 is all about. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's what unites us as a community of believers. We commit to love one another, to be united around the truths presented in verses 12 through 14, not based upon the shifting likes and wants and opinions. Let's love one another, united around Jesus, and agree to give each other grace when we don't share the same perspectives or opinions on secondary issues. Let's value our relationships with one another more than our immediate needs and commit to be the one who takes the first steps toward one another in love. It's what Jesus did for us. And if we're Christians, he'll compel us to do likewise. John tells us to love Jesus as Lord and to love the body of Christ. Lastly, in verses 15 through 17, John tells us not to love the world. See, we live in a cultural moment that tells us if we can just buy this product or achieve this goal or have this right relationship or get this next thing that then we'll have joy and happiness. It won't be complete until we get this thing, right? And that's not a complete lie. There is some immediate gratification that comes from these things, from buying something, from achieving a goal. There is some pleasure that comes from these things. But the reality is that none of the pleasure that comes from making a purchase or achieving a goal or getting that right relationship, none of the pleasure that comes from those things is enduring. All of it is passing away. The world and its pleasures are fleeting. And I'll be honest with you all, I have a consumeristic heart. I love stuff. I really love Milwaukee power tools. I love 
smartwatches and headphones. I read, read blogs about gadget and when the newest gadget is coming out. I know you, all of you are sick of hearing me talk about finishing my basement. My wife's as sick of it as you are, right? She's ready for me to be done with that thing. Along with that, I love stuff. I love gadgets. I love working on things. I also love food, barbecue and steak and ribs and eating out. <coughs> There's just something, something really good about restaurant food. When I don't have to make it or make the mess, I just love it. It just tastes better. There are a lot of things to love in this world and a lot of pleasures to be had from those things. And I'll be honest with you, this is one of the reasons why I've been thankful for the coronavirus. It's one of the reasons why I've been praising God for allowing the coronavirus to shut us down. The coronavirus has made me realize how much I love this world and how comfortable I am in chasing after the, the things of this world. All the things I enjoy in this world have been stripped away from your life and my life for a time. And I praise God for that. He's reminded me that these things are fleeting, that they are here today and gone tomorrow, that you cannot build your life on the pleasures of this world because you can't trust them. It's not that these things are bad or evil, but they can't ever become our source of satisfaction or life's enjoyment because they're so fleeting here today and gone tomorrow. You see, God doesn't want us to, to not love the world because he wants us to live some joyless existence. That's not true. Actually, the opposite is true. When we love and chase the fleeting things of this world, the Bible says we get enslaved on a giant hamster wheel chasing the wind. Whatever we get or gain, we can only hold or grasp onto for a moment before the joy and the happiness that we gained slips through our fingers. And God has something better for us than that, something more lasting and eternal, something more solid for us to grab a hold of and receive joy and happiness from in this life and in the next. And that thing is himself and the purpose that he gives to our lives. You see, love for the world and loving the world looks like pursuing the pleasures that the world has to offer. And church, the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of happiness just plain doesn't work. If we pursue pleasure and happiness for the sake of pleasure and happiness, the Bible says we will never find it. We'll, we'd be more successful chasing the wind. Now why is that? Well, I think it's because we weren't made to please ourselves. That's a misguided or misunderstanding of our purpose. Human beings were not created to enjoy themselves. You and I were created to glorify and enjoy God. If we are to find true and lasting joy and happiness in this life, then we need to reorient our purpose to align with what the Bible declares it to be. You and I were not created to glorify and enjoy ourselves in and of ourselves. We were created to glorify and enjoy God. We have to rediscover our true purpose. John says as much in verse 17. Anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. See, we were created to live to please God. 
It is only when we cease our, res- our relentless pursuit of pleasure and instead pursue God that real and lasting pleasure will be gained. I get it. This is, this is a little philosophical here. So I want to bring it down out of the ivory tower and um, make it a little bit more applicable. Loving the world and craving pleasure and stuff and achievements is kind of like treating your job as a means of income versus as a calling from God to serve him and serve your fellow man. I read a study this week about hospital janitors that I think is helpful. There are few jobs that are as as thankless and unpleasant as cleaning up after sick people, right? Cleaning bedpans and vomit, it's uh, usually not part of most people's pursuit of happiness. But this study confirms what 1 John 2, 15 through 17 teaches. The pursuit of happiness as an end in and of itself is not nearly as productive as the pursuit of purpose and meaning within whatever work God has given you to do. That's where real lasting pleasure and happiness is found. The study surveyed people from all kinds of work arenas and found specifically from hospital custodians that when one is able to find the purpose God has for them in their work, their work becomes pleasurable, regardless of some of the unpleasant tasks that that work might require. The janitors who felt that they were an essential part of a patient's recovery, they actually went out of their way to make their work more supportive of the patient's healing. They modified the types and timing of their cleaning. Those janitors that worked around patients' needs as well as going out of their way to chat with the patients in their rooms as they worked and even circle around back to those patients who had fewer visitors the janitors who went so far as to keep in touch with patients after they were discharged. They developed relationships with these patients that lasted outside of the hospital. For these janitors that saw their tasks as opportunities to serve God and others by finding their purpose within the work God had given them to do, they were actually much happier than those who treated their job as an end to financial gain or some other step in their career ladder. The custodians that found true and lasting happiness didn't just take the same job and decide to have a better, to, better attitude about it by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and whistling while they work. No, they actually found the meaning in the work God had given them to do, and they decided to do their job differently with a renewed and greater sense of purpose. What these workers did was quietly create the work that they wanted to do out of the work that they had been assigned. They worked to please God through their tasks they were given as opposed to just treating their tasks as an end to chasing some worldly pleasure. And this is what John is calling Christians to do. Church, we're called to live in this world, but we're also called to not be of this world. God has given each of you giftings and abilities And yes, jobs. And those jobs do serve to provide an income and put food on the table. But if you treat your job as a means to buy beer for the weekend or treat or or take the next vacation, you may be able to find you might be able to find a little bit of pleasure, but it will be fleeting. If you choose instead to love God and pursue his purpose for you within whatever work God has called you to do you won't fall into the snare of endless and relentless rat race of chasing after the things of this world. Instead, you'll find fulfillment and enjoyment in your work 
and be able to enjoy the good things in this life because your true pleasure and joy will be rooted in pleasing God who is sure and eternal. So to summarize, 1 John 2, 1 through 17 tells us that a Christian loves Jesus as Lord and listens to what he says. Along with that, a true Christian loves the body of Christ like a mother loves her newborn with a covenantal love that places more emphasis on the relationship instead on what the relationship can give them in return. And lastly, a true Christian doesn't get sidetracked in their pursuit of pleasing God by pursuing the fleeting pleasures of this life. They have joy that is not contingent upon the changing winds of time and culture, but instead is rooted to the rock of Christ. May these truths give you more assurance in your faith, or may they give you the conviction you need to wake up, repent, and receive the salvation Christ is offering to you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather virtually. Lord, we long for the day and look forward to next Sunday when we have the opportunity to gather in person. I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom as we think about how best to do that, how to do it safely, how to do it in a way that honors you and considers the needs of the weakest in our community and also submits to our government. Father, I pray that you would help us to love you more. Help us, Father, to love Jesus as our Lord, to care about what he tells us, to listen to his commands, not, not out of a sense to earn our way to heaven, but because we love you and have relationship with you. I pray also that you would help us love the body of believers well. Help us to not just be in this thing for what we can get out of it, but help us live with an eye towards service and towards sacrifice that we can give to our fellow brothers and sisters the love that Jesus displayed for us on the cross. And Father, I pray that you would keep us from the love of this world. Give us purpose and meaning in our lives, in our careers, in our work. Help us to serve you in whatever we do. I pray that that would give us pleasure and joy that is not hinged to the task at hand or the circumstances of life. We love you, Lord. Help us love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.